1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions. I'm your host, Dr. Raj uh, Balkharan, rajbalkharan.com. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. E.H. Rick Jarrow, who is Associate Professor of Religion and Asian Studies at Vassar College. We'll be speaking on a a brand new translation and commentary on a very important uh, Indic text His publication is called The Cloud of Longing, A New Translation and Eco-Aesthetic Study of Kalidasa's Megadhuta. This is uh, Hot Off the Press' brand new uh, 2021 OUP publication. Rick, a hearty welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. Thank you very much. I was delighted to see uh, this title as I was sort of every once in a while, maybe two or three times a year, I'll go, I'll go hunting for some titles, (laughs) but often people will, will, will email me. I was delighted to see this title. So uh, for those in the audience who will certainly have heard of uh, the Megaduta, perhaps not, why don't we situate how important this is or significant? Uh, What is this Kali Dassa's Megaduta?
0: Well, Officially, it's a kanda Kavya, or a short or a classical poem, uh, which, according to later, we call them, poeticians, critics, has certain certain qualities um, in it. Primarily, um, lyric poetry, still situated in the Indian epic universe. Um, most people date the the Kalidasa around the fourth century. Um, I have no idea. Uh, I, I often quote the Indologist Dwight D. Whitney, who says that in as far as Indology is concerned, dates are like bowling pins. You set them up to knock them down again. Um, but um, I remember uh, speaking with my mentor, you know, Barbara Stoller Miller, who, is translated Kali Dasa's plays and uh, she she had been in a process of translating Kumara Sambhava and, and she always said that we need a new translation of the Megadutta. Uh, and I find I found it partic and find it particularly timely because of the the darshan, the, the vision of nature that this poem offers, um, which for me makes it topically significant, as well as classically relevant. I mean, it's a stunningly beautiful poem, but beyond its its lyric beauty, there's a a, a, kind of a vision of the natural world, which is quite remarkable for me.
1: We'll dive into that important theme for sure. Um, so this is a very beautiful Sanskrit poem. How long is the poem and what sort of Sanskrit is well, it? Well,
0: there there are so many versions, and this is always an interesting question in classical Indian literature because, you know, they have something called critical editions um, in which scholars and now computers uh, look at all the recensions of a text and, and try to call the verses that are, quote, authentic because it appears in most of them. I've never bought into the idea of a critical edition. I think it's an imposition, you know, a mono kind of, Narrative imposition. But um, that, in some editions, the poem is 110 verses, some is 108 verses, some is 111 verses. That's why I brought that up. But it's short compared to epic poems. So it's, it's quite, I think that's one reason it's manageable, but it's, it's also quite um, eloquent, flowery, and difficult Sanskrit.
1: So we've had um, uh, a couple of podcasts, a number of podcasts, actually, uh, um, diving into this critical edition issue, whether uh, the translation of the Vishnu Purana, whether um, 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 the Skanda Purana project, uh, and and their the various views. Obviously, um, um, uh, there's some utility in them, clearly, and there there's no shortage of of, of issues and pitfalls. So. Um, What did you end up using then as the text from which you translated?
0: So I look through, you know, SK Day has the critical edition of the Megaduta. Um, But I decided to uh, kind of stay in the lineage that the poem has already been translated in, you know, in the West. And that was through Leonard Nathan's, you know, work in the 1980s. Um, I'm not sure. I think he was using the manuscript that probably Ed Giroux gave him, but I suspect um, there's one a recension, Dakshinavartana Vartana uh, recension, that I think he used. It's 100 and, uh, 100 and uh, how many verses? T- 10 or 11. Um, but I decided to um, stay with the, uh, the version that uh, Nathan used to make things uh, less complicated. I, I, you know, if, if I wanted to standardize anything, I'd put 108 verses, but I'm not going to be the one to decide which, which is, you know, who's the real Kalidasa. Uh,
1: these are fascinating
0: questions. Which brings so. up, uh, just on the side note, a really interesting issue about the Ritu Samhara was, you know, Kalidasa's other poem, because this, I think, uh, exemplifies the critical edition argument. If you go to India, you go to Kalidas Academy, you talk to, you know, scholars in India, everyone considers uh, Ritu Samara to be part of the Kalidaks, Kalidasa oeuvre, where Western professors do not. They think it was done by some inferior hand.
1: Yeah, there's, a, there's an ongoing and fascinating tension um, with respect to uh, looking at a text or a textual tradition from an etic or an emic perspective, and the right. sorts of questions we 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 bring to bear on the work, and uh, there's much to be said. So it's it's always really fascinating. And that's why I ask these questions. I probably should have primed you before I hit record, but I tend to ask naive questions on this podcast <laughs> to see yeah. what comes. And the next one that <laughs> the next one that comes to mind is, um, how do you go about translating the verses? Like, what's that process like? Oh
0: my God! You know, know, right? (laughs) um, That's it's a really that's a that's a loaded and interesting question, Um, because the the way I work, and I suspect a lot of people work, is the first step is to get the literal translation, and that that's a, a lot of dictionaries and a lot of commentaries to see how different um, words are, are used. The, the next step is to look at all the translations that we have, and there are quite a few. And there's some that are incredibly um, uh, liberal, let's put it that way, flights of fancy. Um, and there are others that are, are literally accurate, but unreadable in an, in, in an English vernacular. So you have to, once you have, uh, we call the abhida or the basic denotative you know, uh, translation, then you have so many choices. First of all, because Sanskrit syntax does not demand any particular word order. Um, so as a translator, you have the freedom to kind of move things around. Um, secondly, because as, as you know, just about every word in the, in the Sanskrit language has multiple meanings. Um, there there are many ways to do it. I kind of um, worked a lot to get the literal, um, looked at a lot of translations. Uh, You know, Leonard Nathan was interesting because I I still consider it a breathtakingly beautiful translation. Um, A lot of, quote, purist scholars do not like it uh, because it took so many liberties with the text, but that becomes the kind of the fulcrum of uh, controversy, like where do you take liberties, and how do you not? And my my model, I, I think I was fortunate because I had a model to work from, which was Barbara Stoller Miller, who, you know, and and I follow kind of what her methodology, which is you take poetic liberties, but you di- you have to defend every single one of them. So that's what I basically do in the footnotes. I kind of tell people like why I translated this this way. Um, but it's it's, um, it's poetry, it's, it's multiple meanings, uh, it's different contexts. And, and that's an interesting issue that, that you kind of brought up. There's the, the text and the context. Um, A caveat was court poetry as far as we know. And we don't know that much. We always like to imagine we know more than we do. But most likely it was poetry that was recited by upper classes. In the court, and um, <clears throat> it was not a private reading experience that uh, that we have in the West. And I do my best to keep that in mind. But what I've what I've tried to do here um, <clears throat> is not only translate but discuss the text in a way that it's not only available to Sanskrit specialists but to people anywhere who are interested in literature and particularly poetry, because from, you know, if, if you read poems like the Megadutta through the Rasa Dvani um, critical tradition, um, I just find it's, it's endlessly rich and you can go many different directions with it.
1: There's, um, this, um, there's this really interesting tension when it comes to translation or even studying narrative um it, 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 the translation is both a science and an art it seems to me you know th- there are obviously principles in terms of, of understanding and rendering uh, the meaning the sense the the, the the tenses the syntax and then there is um how do I convey the flavor the cadence the alliteration in a different language and um uh some months back uh, I had um uh, uh, Archana venkatesan on the podcast, she did a translation of a, a, a very rich um, uh, poem called uh, uh, to, to the Vivaldi in the song, and, and she was talking about her process in terms of letting the original verse sit with you, sort of digesting it. And it may not, it may not come out, it, it comes out in a way that feels true to what you experience in the original language, irrespective of how parallel the actual syntax and word choices. Very good. I like that. That's
0: kind of what I experience. Um, I like that very much Um, because, you know, you're dealing with, as you said, cadence, you know, orality and rhyme. And um, I found the, I've, seen versions where people try to translate the you know or like white Whitney's the earliest no was it Whitney no who who did that earliest um, eight roots book? Um, what's that
1: Whitney did a book on root Sanskrit roots, roots. Yeah. yeah
0: no no The one of the HH um, H. Wilson uh, you know that one of the earliest translations where he he does a poetic he does it in English poetry and you know rhyme and and it it sounds to me, anyway, uh, contrived and it's very difficult to read. So I find I have found it uh, necessary to translate uh, in free verse and to kind of let the meter suggest itself uh, instead of imposing a mandakrantha meter on another language, which is not workable for me.
1: Yeah, there's some really interesting um, parallels. There was also a, a, a podcast with. Um, uh, Makamis Taylor of Australian National University, he's done uh, a, a, a brand new open access translation of the Vishnu Purana in, mm. in blank verse, right? Mm, and, right? It's in blank verse, and it's it's really beautiful to read aloud. Right. Um, the reason why that came to mind is that H.H. H. Wilson was, uh, the, 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 he translated the Vishnu Purana and basically said, look, right. um, there's nothing much to see here, folks. Um, <laughs> so it was a while before um, the Puranas were were again translated or taken seriously as objects of study. Yeah. Um, uh, there's so much interesting here that the, the orality piece is, is crucial. A question for you. Do you envision this book to be uh, read, read aloud, both? What, what's your sense?
0: I would love the poem to be read aloud. And I kind of translate it aloud. Um, and I, I actually, the, at the last stage, um, I read it aloud with friends of mine who are poets. Uh, just to see how it's going to, you know, how it works. Because um, we're getting back to that with electronic media and the convergence of sound and sense in, in electronic media. But I think history will show that the experience of private personal reading is going to be a rather short one, you know, maybe, you know, a few hundred years, but thousand years at most. So. Uh, and that's what I like, it. The, 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 the classical Indian vision of time uh, is quite different than the one people who are reading this are going to be accustomed to. But I, I see it, it I, I, I would like it to be read aloud and listened to aloud. Uh, is that possible? I don't know. But that's how I work with it. And I find um, when I you know, read it aloud in, in the translated version, the English version, it's, um, that's when I can really feel if it's working or, or not, uh, you know, reading it silently and looking for whatever you're looking for is not the same experience. It, for me, it does not transmit rasa and that's the goal. The goal oh. of the literary work of art in India is to produce rasa and in order to produce rasa, you have to recognize it. And, Abhinavakup to say you recognize it by reading again and again and again, like a wish yeah. fulfilling cow. You keep getting new <laughs> possibilities.
1: Uh, so many thoughts. Which one? Which one to start with? Okay, in no particular order. Um, the idea of rasa. Uh, for those listening, most of you might be familiar with this concept of uh, literally taste, flavor. But in aesthetic theory, it's the, the flavor of of the work, the taste of it. And it's interesting that the the, the, the this uh, taste occurs on the tongue and, yeah. and and recitation occurs on the tongue exactly and uh, there are many a times where i'll i'll tell a poronic story for from, from my teaching um more than my mm-hmm. scholarship occasionally a snippet in, in an academic talk or something but for teaching i always you know regale them with tales of old and unpack them because then they'll never forget the, the themes right um um and every once in a while <laughs> i'll get a question you know uh, you know, um you know, when I was doing the reading, you know, that didn't happen to Ganesha, you know, and I and I say to them, you have to understand the text is on the tongue. You you get to witness live, real storytelling in, in real time. This this is being told to you as a function of this time, this space, this audience, right? So there is that tension between the textual authority and then the living tradition. yeah. And I think that's very much, um, I think in my view, that's only um, um, heightened uh, in the realm of poetry.
0: You know, the uh, person who, one of the people I, I, I read Megaduta with and studied, um, Dr. Casey Bhattacharya, who taught at BHU, he was legally blind. He couldn't read anything. He had the entire poem memorized, along with many other things, and he just recite, you know, and that's, uh, that's the way it's meant to, that's how you feel it, and um, one of the, I think the real interesting um, contrast between the written word and the text and the spoken word is, is, the amazing thing that if you go to Western academic institutions and you read poetry that the question they they kind of work with is what does it mean. And that would never occur to a, a rasika it's what does it taste like. And the other thing I think that's so wonderful uh, about the, the the tradition of kavya is the onus is on the, the, the reader or the hearer not the artist. Um, you don't, you know, yeah, they talk about the Pratibha. They, they, they'll briefly talk about the genius of Kalidasa, but not not very long. Um, the, the, the ability to um, experience rasa is in, the, is in the court of the the ball is in the court of the reader or the hearer. Um,
1: it's uh, lovely. Um, it, so tell us a little bit about what you say about Kalidasa.
0: Well, I can't tell you anything about Kalidasu because nobody knows anything. Uh, there's just there's stories. You know, there are these great stories about how he was um, an illiterate kind of guy who was visited by the goddess Kali and all of a sudden started spouting these poetry. Most scholarship puts him in the Gupta court, you know, the early Gupta court. But th- this is what's I think so uh, interesting and connects to modern literary criticism. Um, I studied for years with uh, Michael Riefetail, the uh, French literary semiotic theory. And he used to always insist the author is just the label on the text. Um, And um, so you can't, we don't know much about Kalidas. And I think that's, that's kind of the way it should be. On the other hand, uh, what he's writing about, uh, everybody knows like, because it's all based on epic narrative, and epic narrative is, is part of the cultural respiration you know it's it's there and and um if you don't know it the, even the landscape doesn't make sense and that's one of the things um, i love about the poem that it integrates language love um and various va- variants of textual history in fact Uh, This idea of variance versus a so-called critical narrative, um, you can almost see like that is um, kind of a function of the idea of a critical, you know, addition is kind of the function of the contemporary industry of of translation. It's convenient. It's helpful. uh, We're all on the same page, but that's not how people talk or write. Almost any story you run into, there'll be multiple variants. And scholars of myth can point that out. What makes a myth myth is that there are multiple variants. Uh, What do you say
1: in your question? Oh, no, it's always, the questions are always meant to be generative. Um, um, What do you say in your section about the Tantric Kalidasa? Okay.
0: You know, I... I took this, I knew I, I, I was expecting to get um, uh, gunned down by a lot of people for using this word. But I actually got I,
1: it. I, I come
0: in peace. I'm holding okay. the Abhay mudra. You know, the, your fear or not. You're, you, we're good. <laughs> but I, I actually, I, I, way, way back when, when I first read Megaduta with uh, Barbara Miller, she mentioned that there was something tantric about the text. And I kind of I kind of moved with that, and I said, "You know, what is it?" And it's very clear it's <clears throat> it's kind of a corrective for me to the um, what we call es- uh, aesthetic philosophical tradition that separates Purusha, prakriti, uh, nature and spirit. Um, it incorporates uh, all the senses. Along with language, um, so I like to say the sensibility is tantric in that the sensibility is imminent versus transcendent, but not imminent in a in a way that you know some people put uh, kavya in the realm of kama, you know you know completely. And I, I have to disagree with that. Um, but it offers a, a vision of of things of reality in which there are no strict dichotomies, nature, spirit, um, language, and um, substance. So in that sense, I see its sensibility uh, as tantric. You know,
1: I'm a scholar of narrative. I typically study, um, uh, my main work was on the Devi and uh, the epics, Um, and so, you know, I don't study Tantra. I'm I'm not involved in in Tantra studies. Uh, But for me, uh, as of late, (laughs) it's dawned on me that there are so many Tantric themes in the Devi Mm Mahatmya, yet there's no overt mention of Tantra. And yet there's so many nods and so many themes. If I were to make an argument, I would say clearly the author or authors were influenced by by tantric Hinduism, if not tantricas themselves, who knows? It's sort of a Trojan horse tantric text. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, you know, well, and, and yeah, yeah. A, a poet by the name of Kali Dasa. I mean, Kali is exactly, <laughs> and,
0: and that to me is is another characteristic of tantra, which you find in a lot of in in in, in enough Kavya, which is the redeeming aspect of the feminine. um whether that's the Devi or whether that's um, the natural world, that is, you know, that is where uh, redemption lies.
1: Fascinating. Is there a section of verse that we can perhaps uh, give a taste of aloud that we can, we can read in English or in sounds- um, yeah, well, the, well, the audience would be primarily English-speaking. We'll but, uh, but, but feel, but feel free to feel free to also read the Sanskrit well, because I, those I, be, just to give a sense of the the, the 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 beauty.
0: Let me see if I can get the the Sanskrit up. I had it up before.
1: Sure, either or whatever
0: whatever is readily available to you. But it's interesting. Um, I'll read the first few verses because they they set up uh, the rest of the text. And they also um, give you um, at least the rationale and and uh, and the issue about uh, this this question in the fifth verse um, about how can a, a cloud blend of uh, I'll read my translation. It says, um, "What does a cloud blame of smoke? A uh, blend of smoke, flame, water, and wind." have to do with meaningful message meant to be conveyed by the fit senses of the living. Heedless of this from ardent fervor, the yaksha made his request. For lovers afflicted by passion can no longer tell the aware from the inert. Uh, um, the cloud is supposedly inanimate. So how does the inanimate world carry animation? And it's really interesting in this regard, because right now, as far as I can see on the planet, you're kind of two competing visions of nature and consciousness. You know, there's the Christian Hindu, which puts consciousness somewhat apart from nature. And then there's uh, the Buddhist cognitive science version, which sees consciousness as emergent out of nature. Um, and 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 kalidasa in this verse he, he you know he, he skirts this issue he said well um, uh, what's that verse in the in the gita um Nalo vayu kamano budhi eva cha these are the elements of prakriti um, earth air fire water mind buddhi uh ahankara. how are you translate these uh, ego and and yet the, the, way that, the way that meaning is carried here is not through a cognitive process, but it's kamartahi, those who are afflicted by kama. And in that sense, we have an extremely tantric vision because in mainstream Hindu thinking, kama is often seen as an affliction, something that you rise above. Uh, either through dharmic prescription or intense um, aesthetic discipline or, or whatever. Whereas here, um, it being afflicted by karma, either, you can read this, it makes somebody uh, insane. You cannot tell consciousness. You know, It's Chaitanas issue Chaitana is a word for consciousness. So they can't tell the, the living from the dead, the in- because Either they've gone mad or they've gone beyond. And it just reminds me of a wonderful experience I've had many times where I live, I spent many years living in Brindaban and hanging out in the marketplace. And there's this one man who uh, hangs out in the marketplace. Um, His pants are entirely ripped. His butt is sticking out. He doesn't talk. He has this kind of weird, weird smile and he bums tea at different tea stalls. And, I asked uh, my, my uh, friend, some of people who say informant, who is this person? And the answer was, he is somebody who does not know what is Maya. So he's seen as uh, some kind of gone beyond Avadut uh, mosque, you know, something like this. So there's, there's an exaltation of the fever, which... In other texts, Buddhist texts, is saying the whole world is burning, but here the burning is is kamartahi. It it, it takes you into a different um, reality. So um, that's that's a nice verse. Um, one of them, one verse that I love, if I can find it, um, is when you know, what's happening in the text for those who have not read it or don't know it is this this exiled yaksha who is a um, comparatively insignificant semi-divine being in the whole you know, uh, hierarchy of, of, of being. He's exiled on a mountain due to some infraction which is never specified, um, but it seems to have something to do with Kama. Um, and he's pining for his lost beloved who's back at his home, and he spots a cloud in the sky and he asks the cloud to deliver a message. And the cloud um, never speaks back, uh, but he, um, the, the Yaksha describes to the cloud the, the route that he is to take, which is through various provinces of the land that we now call India, which is amazingly um, detailed and accurate in its description of Things and at the same time philosophically acute. For example, the second verse now, on that hill, lovelorn and months from his mate, his wrist so wasted that it had shed its golden bracelet. He saw during the full month of Ashada a cloud muzzling, nuzzling a mountain ridge, like a handsome elephant playfully budding the side of the hill. So the, the, there are themes here that you find throughout the Sanskritic tradition. One is viraha, which is love and separation. This is what makes the bangle fall from the wrist, so wasted because I'm pining after my beloved. And there's this incredible tradition um, that the, 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 the deepest experience of, of love is not m- the union with your mate, but it's when your beloved has, has disappeared and you're left in this incredible agony. Uh, which is so deep that it actually gets cultivated. And for those who don't know, like the, the interesting theological history is that the um, Vaishnava theologians took the Megadutta and works like it um, and recast the Sanskrit aesthetics in terms of bhakti theology. So they took, you know, if rasa is the goal, the, the feeling that the work of art produces, and it's interestingly... Uh, Bharata, who, Natyashastra does not locate rasa in the text; he he locates it in the interaction between the audience, the actors, and the play. So it's an interactive, relational process. And so here, um, love the lovelorn yaksha um, whose golden banglet is falling, and this this is a this particular trope is taken pretty much word for word from Kalidas's other. Uh, to Eshakuntala, Kuntala, where, where we have another golden bangle falling, and then during the full moon of Ashada, the, the full moon month of autumn here, um, is uh, fraught with um, reminiscences uh, of love and separation, and lovers who can't get back, and union, and and a cloud nuzzling a mountain ridge. Uh, a a lot of Western scholars wondered why would the great poet Kalidasa write a poem on something such as trifling as a cloud. Um, In fact, in the very, unlike other Kavias, the first verse of the Megaduta, um, there's no hero mentioned. Um, There's no benediction mentioned. This is not a, a traditional beginning of a of a kavya, kaschit kanta viraha swadik some some old yaksha, you know, it could have been anybody. Um, so he immediately tells you that this is not the rasa. Here is not virabab. It's not about the heroic. It's about it's it's about something else. And so, uh, just to finish this thought, the cloud playfully butting the side of a mountain. Um, Some of the words used for play, like parinata is also a word in Sanskrit aesthetics, how literal meaning gets transformed into um, metaphorical meaning or um, what we call dvani or um, suggestion. So there's an amazing, I don't know how this, you know, this is the genius of this, the, the the amazing integration of Sanskrit critical awareness with the properties of nature. And, and, and this includes gods and humans. At one point, the cloud goes to Mount Kailash, which is the abode of Shiva. And there's a, a, a tree with its branches raised up in the air. And that tree, is, those branches are seen as the arms of the god Shiva. And the twilight, the rakta, the red uh, twilight energy of the sun coming through the arms of the tree is seen as the, uh, the blood that f- f- fell from this gaja, this elephant that Shiva um, killed and, and turned into a drum and the thunder of the cloud becomes the drum. Now, here's where Tantric comes in because someone might say, oh, how imaginative. The poet has ascribed um, mythical scenes to nature. Uh, but uh, you know, the tantric way of reading it is no. This is this is actually happening. That that nature is a pageant, and God's, humans, history, people are all incorporated in this vision, and this celebration is going on. And what motivates it is the the anguish of of love and separation, which dis, you know is the engine that distills the rasa.
1: That's the perfect segue to my next question, which is uh, the translation subtitle is a new translation and eco aesthetic study yes. of megaduta. How is this an eco aesthetic study?
0: You know, this is what got me interested. I mean, Barbara Miller always said we need another translation of the megaduta, but do we need another translation of anything? There's you know, there's a million, you know, there's so much available. But when I began. Retroactive reading for the umpteenth time. It just occurred to me that what is being offered here is 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 more than a beautiful fancy. It's it's a way of experiencing and looking at the natural world, which is genuinely topical. It's genuinely significant. Um, is is the world inert or is it? you know, intelligence or is it, you know, and um, in the vision of, of Kalidasa, there is no natural world uh, apart from the stories about it. And this is also true in you know, Aboriginal songline traditions. And uh, 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 I've read, uh, you know, books about placemaking among the Apache um, people that there's a, the sense of place the word I use, and this gets back to the Tantric for the sense of nature and place, is "loka," because the word "loka" incorporates like many different meanings. It literally means a place. It can also mean a realm in terms of this, the type of place it is. It can also mean a people, and it's from the verbal root "luka," "lokika," which is or "lokika," which is the sight or the vision. So at, you're at once you have a vision, a place, and a people, um, and they're not distinguishable. They're part of the fabric of nature. And you know, I, I I've worked at a I think a I think I could be I think Vassar College could be correctly described as a a left leaning northeast liberal university. You know, college where. Um, uh, people and scholars who like to think themselves as progressive have established, um, programs in environmental studies. But if you really look at the content of these programs and they are 99% based on quote scientific visions of what is nature quantifying gases elements. Um, whereas the, the idea that that you cannot really connect to nature without the aesthetic appreciation doesn't enter into a lot of contemporary environmental discourse. And in fact, the only, uh, I'm sure there are others, but the only two Western scholars who I know who really talk about this are not Sanskritists and not literary people. They're, uh, I guess you would call the late James Hillman a depth psychologist. Uh, I think Hillman's, Hillman's mentor, uh, Henri Corbin, who studied um, Islam and Islamic aesthetics and talk about him or the, the appreciation through the heart as, as a, as a kind of third pathway. I think that the, the vision of nature in the Megadutta exemplifies this. And it's telling me that without imagination, uh, your nature is just an objective fantasy of what Blake called Newton's compass.
1: There's, um, as you're speaking, what comes to mind, um, the the podcast is really a space to, to, to spotlight whatever we're we're currently talking about. I I don't, you know, take sides particularly in terms of methodology or conclusions or, or this or that, uh, uh, but I have to say, much of what you say resonates. Uh, what's coming to mind is, I believe it was last month or a couple of months ago, um, in the timeless time of this COVID world. Brian, yes. um, I was asked to do um, uh, do the occasional public talk, uh, and it was to for a group called what was it called Hindu Climate Action. Hmm. I believe that there are there's some. Um, connection. they' they're, they're affiliated in some way with the, with the OCHS where I teach. but the, okay. they were they weren't looking particularly for um, uh, uh, um, an environmentally oriented talk. They are always interested in sort of enriching their knowledge of, of, of Hinduism right. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay well, it happened to be uh, around Navaratri. I thought okay. It's Navaratri. Uh, this is my area. Let's present on, on the Devi and, and uh, the Devi Mahatsbya and the, the vision in that in that, in that that text. And as I was preparing the slides, I realized, OK, this is a fantastic text to present um, with respect to their interests. And the, the talk was called Why the Goddess Cares About um, Activism uh-huh. or, or Climate Issues. It's Mm. a worldview that's radically different from the one we've internalized. We've we've internalized our our collective civilization that we're teaching and speaking in uh, has internalized a notion of nature being a created thing separate from humanity Mm. and divinity. Mm. Um, and it's a radically different view in the Devi Mahatmya, even within the, the Hindu world, where it's saying the Devi is the, the, the supreme divine, is the fabric of nature, and she's hymned as uh, uh, to that goddess who lives in all beings in the form of hunger, sleep, thirst, etc., in the very yeah, natural yeah, world, right, right. and that's a completely different vision. That's one where. That's a sort of theological or philosophical platform that is conducive to why one would see you know the grandeur of the divine in nature, quite literally.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um that resonated something I was um, um you see, I, I I I immediately I was I just noticed in myself the predilection to Kind of retreat into philosophy <laughs> so in my silence <laughs> i was thinking about this relationship between self and nature and the the when the vaishnava theologians like took the mega and people like Jeev goswami they they said uh you know which is like the vaishnava version of rupa that um things are simultaneously one and different so in many ways, Meghita offers an interesting resolution to the self-other, self-nature dichotomy. In that, yes, we are—you know—we're part of nature and we're separate at the same time. Um, and um, and yet, that that I think the other insight into the natural world is that there's no objective world. This is where the tantra comes in. Without the story that you have around it. I have a friend, I, him, I call him the disgruntled poet, uh, Sharad Chandra, who I hangs out in a coffee house uh, somewhere in North India. And uh, he once suggested when I was working on this, he said, you know what you should do? I said, no, tell me, he always tells me what I should do. He said, you should go to these different sites that Kalidasa describes in Meghaduta and film them as they are today. And you'd be, it would be devastated because I, Dr. Bhattacharya used to tell me, you know, I've never seen the stucco roofs of Ujjayani, you know that Kalidasa talks about. Um, in fact, when I was studying uh, Megaduta with uh, Dr. Bhattacharya, he lived like 100 yards from Ganga in Benares. So every day to walk to his you know, dwelling, I walked by Ganga's, I was living by Ganga side anyway. And finally, one day, I just couldn't take. I said, "Tell me, you know, you have all the knowledge. Why is the Ganga so dirty? You know, this is the holiest river in the world. Why is it, you know?" And it was really interesting. He immediately blamed it on Shankara. Um, that, you know, <laughs> because if you reduce everything to a Maya, what does it matter if the river is dirty or not? <laughs> um, so. you know, I think there are reasons why uh, texts like the Megadutta, I would argue, have been marginalized. Um, whereas, you know, you have epics of, you know, epic TV shows of Ramayana and Mahabharata, but Megadutta does not offer a well-known story. And it offers an experience of the natural world that we might have on a beautiful day, but we generally don't live with that. Um that we're part of this living continuum. And I think Megaduta, it doesn't, what's so beautiful for me and powerful, and I, why I love this text so much, it doesn't illustrate it, it embodies it. It just and 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 this this would put people like, I don't know, Saussure, Fernandez Saussure, you know, in mental institutions like and Descartes, you know, people who see language as arbitrary and something different from nature. But uh, that's not where Kalidasa is going. Um, so you touched on this
1: uh, in, in passing earlier, uh, but let's flesh this out. Who is this book for? Who would most uh, resonate with it? Who would benefit from it?
0: I, I, I wrote it. I, I, I constructed it for people who have an interest in world literature. Um, it's not a book for Sanskrit specialists. You know, there, there's plenty of very sophisticated work on the grammar, the flora, the fauna, the history, whatever. I wanted to introduce the, the sensibility of Kalidasa uh, to people who are conversant with, I don't know, uh, a 1001 nights. you know, with with, with different visions of literature um, i i refer to people like william blake extensively here um in terms of again uh the power of imagination so um and, and i state very early on that as a you know a western body and mind i cannot help but read kalidasa through shakespeare milton Yeats, you know, the, the English poetic tradition. So I wrote this for people who would read those poets, for people who would read Joseph Campbell, for people who would be interested in um, issues of aesthetics and imagination, but within the context of world literature. My contention is, if, you're, if, you, if you've read Shakespeare, you should have read Kaleasa, and they're, you know, they're, they're both monumental poets. And in a world in which boundaries are being weakened, if not dissolved, um, we need a, a kind of an understood body of world literature, and not just what I like to call camera, tour, camera tours of the other. You know, this is the Indian view. You know, the megadut is challenging me: um, is nature alive or dead? Yeah.
1: Yeah, rather, certainly the the poem will offer a great deal of insight into ancient India or Kalidasa, um, various subfields within uh, Indology or or, uh, Hindu studies. Um, And um, I think I agree with you, more importantly, profound uh, feats of culture, of the imagination, of, of the intellect, like profound poetry such as this, works of art, they are appealing to humanity and they're engaging you as a person, not as a class, not as a group, not as a gender. They're engaging you about what it means to be living, breathing in flesh and sentient.
0: Well, let's take this a step further, which I see as the most controversial contention of this book, which is that I argue that Western literature, literary studies has... Unconsciously, unknowingly, and uncritically, become wed to a linear historical model of understanding. You understand an Upanishad because you know when was it written? You know where right? these are, you know, and even our contemporary literary critics like you know in the West, like North of Fry, you know. Um, talk about you know reader response like it that the, the text does not have to be read extrinsically it can be read intrinsically to itself um, people who study for example and i'm not talking about um, boutique yoga but real yoga um, they don't really spend much time in, like when it was founded by whom where it's like what is your practice how does it work now and the whole tantric idea is something that seemingly happened 10,000 years ago is just as live now because the, the time is, uh, you know, what's that great Upanishad, I can't, I can't I forgot to say, um, a verbal handle that we have put on things. But the mountains, I had a friend who went to a kind of seminar where they asked him, to go out and talk to a tree. So he he went out in front of a tree and he said to the tree, I have 20 minutes. What can you tell me? And the tree reputedly said back to him, I have no idea what you're talking about, what 20 minutes means. Um, so um, this to me is really important that the nature Kalidasa is speaking about is not a nature that is bounded by a particular geographical or cultural construct as we would like it to be, because that makes what we're doing the latest, the greatest, and most progressive. But in fact, um, well, a story will tell it all. My, uh, the other late um, Sanskrit teacher of mine, the irascible um, trickster, Alex Wayman, was once asked at a conference. he was Someone challenged him at a conference. He was a scholar of Tibetan Buddhism. Someone challenged him, where are you getting your information? Where are you getting this from? And he says, I follow, I'm, I'm getting this all from Tsongkhapa. And and the interlocker said, yes, but he lived in, you know, hundreds of years ago. He's been dead since the 1400s. And um, Wayman responded, maybe for you he is. Um, but... Um, you can see very clearly in Megaduta that the epic, the Mahabharata, is a li- is the living, breathing backbone of this, and it's a it's a it's a jazz riff on Mahabharata. That's how I would really see it. Um, the klem de la klem of Mahabharata distilled into rasa um, by the great poet who could um, see. Uh, the Shama vine, you know, the beloved in the Shama vine, in the water, in the in the eye of a startled doe, um, you know, um, th- this is this is um, really it, it's important to me. It's serious because the the time and space fixation has already been demolished by electronic media, and um, so enough said. Uh,
1: one yes. other, just in, yeah,
0: of just one other part of this is the the, the centrality of the word smada. Um when we say memory, which means memory, as a root, and even you know the, the the best historians will admit that history is nothing but the search for a plausible narrative. Um, it's not about what happened. And T. S. Eliot, who studied Sanskrit for three years at Harvard, understood very well when he uh, rewrites Chaucer at the beginning of the wasteland, like, um, April is the cruelest month lalex in the dead land, mixing memory and desire. Well, the w- Samara memory is also an epithet of Kama, uh, the personification of desire. So the understanding there is any historical memory is coming from your own desire body, how you wanted to see it, how your unconscious wants to see it. Um, so time and space become fluid.
1: Fascinating and provocative idea indeed. Um, oh, uh, before we close today, was there anything else you wanted to share about
0: the book? Um, yes, I guess, I, I, you know, again, one question I always like to ask an author and they generally don't like to answer it. So I'm going to do my best to answer it. Is I say, why did you, why did you write? Like, what motivated you to do this? Um, and my sense is that what the, what the megaduta offers is a poetic perception of reality which has become marginalized extremely marginalized in a um, like the post cartesian capital world fueled by capital um, and it's the argument for me or the, or the value is that seeing this, it's helped me see nature. I can never see a cloud in the same way again. And it brings me back to a poetic perception of reality, which is not bounded by fear of what's right and wrong. What's the meaning, what's not the meaning, but the trust is in the, um, it's interesting, the word in Sanskrit, and this will be a good ending for me, for someone who appreciates poetry, and who can taste rasa is sahridaya, literally with heart. Um, the heart as the organ of perception, and that's that's what really moves me here. Thank you very much
1: for appearing on the podcast once again. We've been speaking with uh, Rick Giroux, um, a professor of religion and Asian studies at the Foster College, on the Cloud of Longing, his brand new translation of uh, Kalidasa's Megaduta. Until next time, uh, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating um, aesthetic experiences facilitated uh, through the natural world. Take care.